Welcome to the Hustle Up podcast, the podcast that shares the unique stories of startups, side hustles and the self-employed. I'm your host, Josh Burrell. On today's episode, I'm joined by Eliza Ribeiro, who is the CEO of the charity Lives Not Knives. Thanks for joining me, Eliza. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Not too bad. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it'd be really good to kick off. We're recording this today on the day of the London election, so it's quite timely. We have obviously seen knife crime as something that's happening commonly in London and across the UK, and it is affecting all races and genders. And I think the Met Police today released details about a one-week crackdown, and with lockdown easing, they're obviously trying to cut down on any sort of crime, and particularly knife crime. And I think they said they've seized around 400 knives in the last week and made more than 900 arrests. So I guess that is showing them as doing something proactive, but hopefully your charity is is doing a lot more on the ground as well. So what is the concept of, of Lives Not Knives and what made you want to start it? So Lives Not Knives originally and always has been kind of a youth-led charity to promote young people, helping young people, prevention um, and engaging, empowering young people to really kind of push themselves, stay in school, through education, etc. Start their own businesses, kind of sort out everything that they've already been through and make sure that they are mentally prepared for adult life. So it's all about, it's, it's really preventative work to support young people in Croydon. Okay. And what was it that made you you want to start it particularly? Was there something that affected you or a friend or family? Or was it just something you'd seen was an issue that you wanted to address? So I went to Coloma Convent Girls School until I was 12 years old. And at that school, I knew nothing about knife crime. I didn't even know we had poverty in kind of London. I didn't understand the factors that would kind of make someone pick up a knife let alone use it etc as soon as I was excluded from mainstream education I went to a few different pupil referral units and it was only then when people were kind of carrying knives every single day and being violent and fighting etc in front of me that I realized how big of an issue that it is I think I was like 13 or 14 the first time I saw someone get stabbed wow what was that like I don't think it really phased me at the time. I think I'd heard so much about it and it was one of those things where I think when when you're that age, if it's something that everyone's doing and everyone around you, it kind of just feels like norm, kind of just feels like the normal thing. Um, So it didn't shock me in the slightest. It was more just like those kind of safe things. So like, oh, if you get stabbed in the hand, it's fine. Or if you get stabbed in the bum, it's fine. You can't die. Yeah. Um, and I think as I got older, it was more shocking because people were dying and it wasn't just my social group or people that I knew that were being affected. Okay. So I always like to to take it back to the start. So touching on what life was like for you growing up in terms of like your family, where you grew up, what you're interested in. You've already said you went to, to Coloma. Uh, so I grew up in Croydon. Okay. I've always lived with my mum, my grandma and my brother. I live literally centre of Croydon, can walk to the town centre. So it's pretty much pretty, pretty easy. Um, my mum and grandma always took us travelling when we were kids, always took us out to like London and various outings, etc. Always had something to do. Uh, we went, yeah, as I said, we went travelling a lot. So we went to like China, wow. Australia, Jamaica, various countries and we'd be there for like weeks and actually like backpack it as a family which was really really fun oh, that's cool um yeah yeah it was really really cool and then what was I into I guess when I was younger I, I really wanted to do um acting I went to I used to do it on the weekends and then as I got older I went to National Youth Theatre for a bit um really I was very dramatic um and then wasn't really massively into sports or anything like that I liked netball but only like the competitive side if you won (laughs) not actually the (laughs) not actually the playing (laughs) just the the winning afterwards and then as I got older I kind of hated the whole like I think 
in year seven, I was kind of asked to be in school choir and various clubs and orchestra and whatever, whatever, whatever. And year seven, I was fine. And then by the time I got to the end of year seven, I was like, oh, I'm quitting everything. I didn't actually enjoy yeah. it. It was kind of like one of those pressures that's like, oh, my teachers asked me to do it. And where you were really young, you're like, yeah, that was me. And, I'll try that was it. me and the violin, to be fair. <laughs> I, I enjoyed playing it for a little while. And then I thought, I just never practice this thing. Why am I doing this? The issue is I had the cello. So there was no way I was taking that home. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't carrying that home. There was no way. So when when you're meant to practice, etc., no, it wasn't happening. And then I kind of, I felt like I was more into just socialising, chilling with the girls, enjoying myself. And even up until now, I feel like my main hobbies are like brunching and why not seeing friends and travelling. Yeah. yeah, I've always wanted to see the whole world. So I'm kind of, that's where I'm at now. Cool. Yeah, the pandemic must have stopped a lot of that fun stuff, but hopefully this summer we'll, we'll be back God. to it. Yeah. Although I feel like the pandemic's really, really good for me in general. I feel like time to yourself, to get to know yourself better was a plus for me. Yeah, of course. So going back to LNK, Lives Not Knives, what are some of the reasons that people carry knives from your experience and people you've worked with? So... A lot of the young people that are referred to us are referred to us after they're already involved in something or because their parents, siblings, etc. have been involved in something and it's flagged to either their school system, social services, care teams, etc. And then they kind of get referred to us for mentoring or support. So this this could be because of a number of reasons. This could be because they've either brought in a knife into school or this could be because their brother's in prison or they they were talking about knife crime and youth violence in school and the young person completely acted out of turn and they didn't understand the emotions behind their reaction towards it and they want us to investigate it further, etc. So a lot of the young people we're working with aren't, I guess, aren't, aren't, shy from that lifestyle and know a lot more about it than we think they do I would say the most shocking things we've heard in the past year are kind of like the the eight and nine year olds that have been taking knives into school wow because we always worked with kids that were a lot older we always worked with like 13 plus yeah. and it's only in the past two years we've started working with primary schools and it's been massive for primary schools that year four and year five are actually taking knives into school um the younger ones now it's it was more like a thing of I can bring it in, watch me do it. Yeah, almost like a showing off sort of thing then. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of our older ones have either been robbed, been threatened, and they don't want to be made an example of. And it's a very big pride thing where it's, well, I'm not going to let someone do that to me and I'm ready. Yeah, the I don't want to be a victim sort of thing yeah 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 exactly I don't want to be a victim I'm not a victim no one's treating me like a victim um and it's like they don't see themselves as being a perpetrator perpetrator though they see it as this is this is me not being victimized this is me not being bullied yeah um but then because I wouldn't say we specifically get young people that have been victims referred to us I wouldn't know from that other side yeah okay um and then so they get referred to you through these various ways what do you guys do what is it that the charity specifically does what are some of the interventions you do what are some of the routes you do to combat it numbers wise we work uh, with 10 schools in Croydon with up to 10,000 young people a year on a whole school approach so initially the first part of our program is to teach teachers how to talk to young people about knife crime in youth violence my like one of the biggest things for me is that a lot of kids see knife crime on the front of a newspaper and that that isn't the first time they've seen it they may have been affected by it they may know a family friend they may they may have kind of past traumas and it's not being spoken about yeah so we teach the teachers how to talk to them and they uh, are then given a resource pack which has five videos in it of people's real life stories so it's like a trauma surgeon talking about how he deals with it in the a E department um to a police officer to a mother of an assailant whose son's actually in prison for 20 odd years for murder 
So these are people's real life stories um, that go with a pack with questions and answers and kind of covering stop and search their rights, etc. So that young people have the whole the whole picture. After those are delivered, the teachers then work with us to look at up to 20 young people per school who they feel like may need extra support and help. And this is really to support them to and and we we say engage empower and educate them to make sure that they're they're staying in school to make sure that they're keeping safe to make sure that there's someone else out there that they can kind of trust and talk to and we can safeguard anything that they might be going through so they refer 20 young people we work with them uh one-to-one for the whole year so we go and are based in their schools two or three days a week um with our lives on lives jumps on actually delivering one-to-one sessions for those young people and then on school terms uh, etc like half term easter summer we then provide in-house support from our office in croydon and take them on various like day trips activities like brighton tate um to give them something to do during those holidays as well Perfect. Yeah, you mentioned the jumpers. So I think your t-shirt range a, a good few years ago is how I originally became aware of Lives Not Knives. And I know you've released some new ones recently. So how does how did the t-shirt idea come about? And how does that support what you guys do? So the t-shirt was the first thing that actually started. The t-shirt was what started Lives Not Knives. It was, I was with a friend in Camden and they were printing t-shirts and the knife was bothering me at the time. But I didn't think that I would be doing Lives Not Knives this many years on. Um, It was literally just like a t-shirt that was printed that said Lives Not Knives in big letters. And I feel like you're a similar age to me. So at the time, um, I put it as my display picture on MSN and loads of people were like, oh, that's a really cool t-shirt. Yeah. Um, and actually my mum supported and gave me some cash to get the t-shirts printed and then with that money we actually held like a party in Croydon to prove that youth could have fun without violence because at that time we were like known as the Asbo generation and saying that after every single like shubs etc someone's getting stabbed so um, that was really to evidence and prove that actually not all young people are like this and we need to stop painting everyone with the same brush. No, that's brilliant. And for anyone younger listening, MSN is it's something that we used to talk on <laughs> on a computer back in the day. Um, MSN Messenger, similar to your like Instagram today, but it was mainly just for chatting. It was better. Yeah, those are the days. Those are the <laughs> days. Um, MSN, Bebo, MySpace, all of those ones that have been gone. <laughs> so going back to the charity again, did you have any guidance from anyone starting out? So like what year did you get the idea and how did it go from sort of an idea to a charity? Yeah, so 2007, we launched as a community interest company. And that was my mum who has literally held my hand up until a few years ago and helped me with everything down to like charity status, paperwork, etc. Taught me how to do budgets, plans, forecasts, everything. So uh, my mum and my grandma actually had their own business um, for many, many years when I was growing up. So they started it all themselves. What was that business? So they they, um, were milliners. So they sold hats, but they were all like handmade and it was all during Ascot and weddings, etc. And they did that for my whole childhood. Okay. Um. And and it was her main source of income. It was her main, her whole life really went into this this business. So, I think, uh, she was the one that taught me most most things about charity business, all of the paperwork side of things, and then I kind of did all the public speaking stuff and all of those engagements on my own. Okay. Yeah. One of my next questions was going to be, did you have any help from anyone starting it out? So your mum was a massive help. Did anyone else kind of guide you through the process of starting up a charity? I want to say yes, a lot of people helped. So yes, there were so many people that supported the the brand, supported what we were fighting for and supported in in that way to make sure that our name was out there and we were introduced to people and we were sitting on the right tables and we were in parliament and helping, etc. But 
in terms of like the paperwork side of things and actually knowing what a board of directors are and trustees and all of that stuff that is like a whole nother ball game going from like business to charity kind of thing yeah I feel like third sector is like a completely different world yeah in in some sense uh, like even when it comes to finances and how we deal with it and where the money has to be spent and knowing what pots go where etc it's kind of completely different to turning over a company and having expenditure at the end of it and stuff yeah so all all the other people I've spoken to on this podcast have been sort of business owners or people with side hustles so it's really good to speak to someone who runs a charity and get that other perspective in terms of finances they always complain about things like taxes how does that work with a charity and do you get a salary how does that work in terms of pay and paying your staff or things like that yeah so we apply for government grants um and other grant and other kind of local authority grants etc obviously quoting council's bankrupt right now that's not a (laughs) hotel yeah but um we also then get like donations and then we also work with different corporates and get funding that way uh so with like some of our larger programs at the moment we're working with uh yef youth endowment fund and home office and then what we would do is like write so there's myself and there's a staff team as well. Obviously, there's a team of people who work with that many young people a year and they're all fabulous. But um, yes, everyone kind of gets a salary, but everything is like a specific pot of funds. So if we've got a grant that is specifically for that program, then the salary has to come out of that grant and can't come from anywhere else kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then if it's specifically money to work and like look after our kids through the summer so it would be if someone said okay I want to donate a thousand pounds to feed this many young people through the summer holidays that would have to go to that of course yeah yeah so it's not like you could you kind of can just say all right we'll do a fundraiser and we have to have have to have a reason and know know kind of where it's going yeah like it has to go towards the charity purpose can't just buy some shoes or something it has to kind of go to a charity purpose and then and then I think with charity a lot of people don't understand is as well you can like check it out on charity commission because I feel like so many people got a bad bad press over the years with a lot of money that was kind of misspent and there's been documentaries made about it and things and if there is a charity I mean it would be amazing if it was mine but if there was another charity you supported and wanted to get to know more about it literally charity commission look at their annual reports look at their finances and it is penny by penny where every single bit of money is spent is on there. Okay, that's good to know. I'm sure a lot of people don't know about that. I didn't know about that. And when you think about sort of charities that do TV ads and stuff, a lot of the time people say, oh, why would I give my money to them? It's not actually going to go to the people or the animals that need it. So I think, yeah, if there's a place out there that actually shows where the money's being spent, that's a useful resource. So what were some of the other challenges for you starting out Lives Not Knives? I feel like I was really, really young. How old were you? So I was 14. Oh, wow. So I was kind of in board meetings and in like House of Parliament. Um, And I think I didn't realise that a lot of people were using me as a spokesperson for all young people instead of me just being able to talk about what I wanted to change. I was kind of used as a, well, we have a young person in the room, so all young people agree with this policy that we're bringing in or yeah. whatever, when it when it's not the case at all. Um, I also felt like I wasn't being heard. So in, it would be like a whole round table on girls and youth violence and girls and gangs and girls and people referral units, et cetera. But then three years later, it would be exactly the same agenda and exactly the same conversation and nothing's changed Yeah, when we've already done that um, and spoken about it. I think that was that was quite hard just to understand and try and work on the mission of actually, yes, Lives Not Knives is a, is a, a brand and it's a T-shirt, and but what do we actually want to get out of it? Yeah. So for the first few years was a lot of public speaking, a lot of helping MPs, Parliament, government, trying to change policy, sitting on round tables, talking. And I didn't see much being done. So it wasn't until I was 16 and I was like, actually, this needs to be 
grassroots we need to actually be working with young people we need to actually be using their voices to tell their stories and we held our own conference in Croydon Town Hall with myself and I think 10 other young people talking about being victors of crime being perpetrators of crime um some of them were in a gang at the time like Croydon gang um talking about their experiences to people that like to the council to you fend in, in Croydon yeah. about what we wanted to change. And then a really good friend of mine was killed in the April, so 11 years ago. He was at a birthday party and he was stabbed. And I think for myself and a lot of the people I was hanging out with at the time, it was like world changing, like the whole world had ended. It was so, so it kind of felt like nothing anyone had really felt before yeah sorry um, to hear that. that's fine I feel like I kind of feel like before that happened it was yes knife crime is a massive issue and yes we need to change it but then after that happened it was like okay now these are the steps we're going to do to make that change and remember him yeah so that's when we started actually doing the work in schools so we started, I think, at the time it was called Edenham. So we did a workshop in Edenham as like one of the first schools we ever worked in. And it was like an assembly for the whole school talking about knife crime. And then from then we went to five schools, 10 schools, and actually partnered with London Fire Brigade, who then in turn kind of booked schools for us weekly like oh, wow. two schools a week for like years and we were reaching massive numbers of young people and being able to have those conversations but the issue was with, was seeing them once and being able to talk about it but then never seeing them again yeah you've only got that one touch point yeah so that's how kind of this program came about with the one-to-one -one mentoring and be able to actually continually support people okay as a side note my my auntie you might know her um works for Croydon Council in this sort of space like education and um basically keeping kids in schools mm. Val Burrell Walker she got an MBE mm -hmm. last year for some of oh, her work fab. but I'm sure you've probably crossed paths somewhere along the way well I'm massive on school exclusion obviously I was excluded myself and I feel like a lot of people don't understand how detrimental that can be to a young person and with LNK Educate and that program are so one of our sole purposes is to help support young people into staying into mainstream education so okay. approximately like half of our prison system at the moment are people that are, have been excluded from school and nine out of ten young people who have been excluded from school end up going to prison as teenagers or offending as teenagers so that's a crazy stat yeah it's basically like a walkway saying okay if you get excluded from school you're more likely to go to prison than you are to get your maths and english gcses or pass let's let that sink in that's mad it seems almost like these people are set up to fail in some ways then doesn't it i i don't know if you're aware but obviously when croydon a lot of the schools became academies yeah. And obviously they've got certain targets that they need to hit. And some of them were expelling like 20 kids as soon as they got new head teachers and as soon as they became academies. So we really need to keep schools accountable. And I think there needs to be a better structure there for the governors, the governance and making sure like I think I don't know, there's so many statistics around it, but even 70 percent of the young people that get excluded from school um, have special educational needs mental health issues etc that aren't actually on their record or they haven't been diagnosed for yeah there's so much like that people probably just don't understand sits behind a lot of what's going on in london what's going on in schools what's pushing people towards maybe gangs or pushing people towards carrying knives so i think what you you're doing is really good work and will hopefully shine a light on what can be done yeah, hopefully. I would I would say some of the kids that are even referred to us now are so young, but they've lived such a colourful life and they're only like 10, 11. And it's actually being open to have those conversations and realising that we need to do better as a community to support yeah. them. Yeah. I So I went to school. I lived in South Norwood, went to school in Wallington. So I was going through Croydon every day. My brother mm -hmm. goes to school in Croydon. My 
middle brother went to school in Croydon. So we've seen Croydon through the years, in a sense. My, my youngest is doing his GCSEs this year, so he's kind of in the thick of it at the moment, still lives in South Norwood. So we've got that link, and hopefully Croydon will change for the better over the years with the work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. I feel like the work we're doing at the moment, we, we can only support up to a certain amount of young people. And we are opening our office and we have got drop-in services, but it's just about actually being able to to support them and give them what they need, really. Yeah. Okay. I'll stop talking about myself for a second. Um, you mentioned <laughs> that you have obviously been in the room with people like politicians, you've been in parliament, you've met with council leaders. How do you find the confidence, so when you're 14, say, to sit in front of a room of adults, what got you through or what made you know that you're right to be in the room with these people I feel like that was never an issue because it was more you've invited me here so I so there's a reason you've asked me to be here I feel like the issue was after that initial conversation in the room where it's like okay I'm going to follow it up and make sure this is changed and and not seeing any results yeah so it was like it's like you know, when we say so many times, like, kids don't trust the counts, kids don't trust government, kids don't trust the police, kids don't do da 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 Yeah. And it's like, I was that same kid that was sitting there being fed all of this stuff and then being like, well, I'm not going to vote for you. Like, <laughs> do you get what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to get into politics. Um, so I feel like that was misleading, but not because they're killing off a manifesto but because they're sitting in your face smiling at you and telling you this will be done yeah and it's like a more personal approach so you I think trying to understand that actually yeah they might know that knife crime is wrong but what are they going to do about it are completely different things I feel like that was a hard kind of pill to swallow as a kid because you just assume that if you're in the room and they're asking you to be there they're going to listen and they're going to understand what you're saying because they want to change it not because they just want a kid in the room to talk about it. Yeah. And have you always been quite confident or were you ever nervous kind of stepping into these rooms thinking, gosh, what am I going to say to these people to try and get my message across? Not really. I feel like I was more nervous because I've the whole parliament, all of that stuff, That that's not nervous. That's no. But um, I feel like I've been in rooms with really inspiring, like I've won kind of Women of Future Awards and like red magazines women to watch and I've been in rooms with people that have like made amazing scientific discoveries or are head designers at like Mattel for all of the Barbie stuff and things like that and I've met women who have kind of created their dream life and I feel like that's more nervous when you're around real life people that have done everything they can to be the best inspiring isn't it yeah, and I feel that that makes me more nervous than politicians and, and yeah, <laughs> that stuff. Men, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's not that many women there, let's be honest. I mean, it's got better. Would you give politics a go? Nah. I feel like it, <laughs> I'd probably be doing the same thing because you can't promise all of these people these things, can you? Like, you can't. And I feel like with even with, with manifestos and whatever, you can say that you're going to do it. But then when you actually get into that position, it's a bit harder. Yeah, it's topical with the the mayoral elections today. Have you been out and voted? Well, no, I have not. Not yet. Oh, okay. I won't keep you too long then. (laughs) In terms of who is running, you met with Brian Rose, didn't you? Did you meet any of the other candidates and how was the meeting with him? Brian came down to Croydon and was really, really cool. Um, He actually, obviously, he did all of the press around it and everything, but he actually spent like an hour and a half with myself and the team and things without cameras there to get to know the real work that we were doing. He's also kept in touch and like, God bless him. He's got amazing voice and clearly wants change. It's just how how he does that now. And I feel like that is the kind of sceptical part of me that's like, okay, I've seen so many people promise things over the years. Yeah. I feel like I've also met Sean Bailey a number of times because he's an advocate for youth work and is very passionate about changing knife crime. I know that he said he was going to get the 450 million to put into youth services. But obviously he he did work for Cameron and um, 
So, so it's kind of just like looking at what he said in the past to what he said now. And Sadiq Khan, I mean, for the past how many years, he's asked us for applications for funding every year and then not given them to us. So we have not been funded right. by the Mayor of London at all since he's been in power. And you would think someone that wants to kind of talk about knife crime, fight knife crime, etc., not come down to like have a meeting after being invited as well. So it's, I don't know, I kind of feel like we all need to be working together. Yeah, and of course. As you know, there's other knife crime charities as well as Lives Not Knives that do do education and try and keep the stories of the people that they've lost alive. And it is so, I guess, heartbreaking at the fact that like we see it all, we see it all over the news and stuff, but they're children and we need to look at it as their children. And I think that when it comes to politics, when it comes to elections, etc., they always draw upon those stories and say, oh, we're going to change knife crime or we're going to... But they're not looking at, like, the respect and the love and the people that have lost someone and the families that have course, lost someone yeah. and actually looking at, we need to stick to this promise and do it because the whole of London's being affected now. It's not like the one-odd family. It's a continual cycle that's been happening for years. Yeah, and they're people, not just statistics. So it's real people out there that this is happening to and it's the people that are left behind that are having to suffer with all of this. So, yeah, if anyone from Sadiq's team's listening to this, then make sure you give some funding to Lives Not Knives. I feel like I've, I've met Boris a number of times before he came PM and the way he spoke about knife crime like when cameras went wrong, I was so confused. I think I even had to go at him and said, these are people, they are not statistics. You can't yeah. do that. I think they put it on ITV. Um, but it, it it's just shocking the fact that if it doesn't affect your life, then, and how many people believe that this doesn't affect their life. Do you think things will change with, with Boris in power? Do you think things will ever change? Or do you think we need a reset from the top down? I think sometimes we look at it as these people are in power, so they have to change things rather than us doing it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so many passionate people and people that have emails saying they want to volunteer, they want to help. And sometimes it's just saying, actually, these people aren't my friends. And to put that much pressure yeah. onto onto them to make change isn't isn't really helping us. And I think even during the whole of lockdown, we saw that whole communities came together and people came together. It wasn't someone that had to tell us to make change to be able to do that. Yeah, there were a lot of community movements throughout the, the pandemic. And it's it's May 2021, we're still in the pandemic as this is recorded. So we did touch on it a bit earlier, but how's it been for you personally, as well as running the charity? What's the impact been? Have you been okay? So we initially started in the schools before the pandemic and then the schools closed. So unfortunately, we had to furlough all of our youth workers. We then went back into the schools in the September as soon as they opened. And then yeah. obviously they locked down again. So we had to furlough again. And then they didn't open back until March. Now, the furloughing and the staff side was hard because you're having to... What I found hard about that was you're having to look after yourself but then you're having to look after a whole team of staff definitely and yeah. make sure that they feel secure in their jobs and make sure they feel safe make sure they understand what's going on when you don't quite get it because it was a shock for everyone when when we locked down and for that long so that initially was quite hard because it was a bit of it was was like okay so when do I get time to look after myself yeah. and um and then it was the impact that it's having on some of our young people. So we basically said that we didn't want to do anything via Zoom or over the phone because we specifically work with the schools and in the schools so we can follow their safeguarding policies and make sure that the young people we work with are properly looked after and safeguarded after any of those conversations, if anything flags. Yeah. What we didn't want to do is be able to say, yeah, totally, we'll be here, we'll have these conversations, and then not be able to get in contact with their special educational needs lead or their safeguarding lead, et cetera, because the internet's down or something's happened. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. When it was, um, when no one was really no knowing what to do with, with schooling. We did talk to a few of our young people. Some of them were finding it very hard to be at home every day. Some of them are having 10-year-olds with suicidal thoughts. Like, it was absolutely crazy. Um, a lot of 
our kids weren't being fed three meals a day. A lot of them are on the books to receive free school meals. Yeah. And then obviously domestic violence. Um, I feel like what's been really, really hard is now that we are back in the schools, a lot of the kids have changed completely. They've seen a lot more at home. A lot of them are very young and have seen their parents drunk, have seen their parents do drugs and they've been shouted at and had more arguments and they, they're just completely different. And I feel like a lot of them have to, have had to grow up very, very quickly. Yeah, very young as well. Yeah, and haven't had that space at school to be a child. Yeah. Whereas that was their their outlet, their space, their the popular kid or they're the fun kid. They didn't have that space. So they had to look after all of their younger siblings while their mum was doing whatever or their dad was doing whatever, etc. And then we had the other kids that had an amazing time at home. So it's just trying to understand that as well and work out what else needs to be done. So we did do more a lot more training for our staff making sure that they were all mental health first aiders and understood youth mental health making sure that they understood domestic violence and sexual violence in the home making sure that we had refreshers on safeguarding and and um just mentoring in general and then we had to make sure that all of our staff before working in the schools were mentally okay themselves they had also had a tough year of being at home so we made sure that they all spoke to a counsellor and a professional because how could I put them with young people if I am not certain they're okay yeah so yeah it's it's been a good chance to refresh and upskill some of the team I guess so you're based is it in Central in Croydon yeah in Central Shopping Centre on the first floor okay and what sort of services do you provide from from the office? Can people drop in or is it more make an appointment, come see someone if you need to? So Mondays and Fridays, we have a youth hub and young people can come and play PlayStation, table tennis, get sexual health advice, mentoring advice and support, college applications, CV stuff, all of that as a drop-in okay. service. And that's open to anyone in Croydon or...? Yeah, anyone in Croydon. That's really good to hear. Might be pointing someone your way. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of like other organisations or charities in the area, do you work with any sort of businesses or other charities, knife crime charities at all? We don't necessarily work with any other knife crime charities in Croydon. We do partner with with quite a few kind of local businesses and are grateful for the help from like co-op we're on their membership scheme so people can help like they they donate money if their member kind of supports our cause which is pretty cool um wing yip have like donated tesco etc so we've got a lot of companies we work with we also have a lot of companies that actually will take on work experience for kids from us so we can refer to them for work experience placement yeah and then obviously Croydon Partnership actually house us in Central. So they're they're fabulous and they have been a, a sponsor for, for so many years and have had us in Central now for, I guess, nearly eight years. Okay. And they've looked after us since then. So. Shows how long I haven't been to Central for. <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't actually live in London anymore. So that's probably part of the reason. So I've got a listener question. One of my friends, Jeremy he said he supports Lives Not Knives and he's asked me, how often do you meet with local council members and what are they doing to minimise the things that lead to people carrying knives or are they more focused on the outcomes? So I haven't actually met with any local council in a few years, probably probably two okay. years. Is that Croydon Council's part? I would say Hamida Ali, before she took over, was very pro lives not knives and actually supported us with some funds to do road shows in school in a few schools Mm -hmm. the council as a whole hasn't supported lives not knives in a while but i feel like we do have sarah jones mp who's always up for a good conversation and really wants to promote education and um, training and is is super passionate about prevention and the work we do. I feel like she's also understanding that it's not just 
the the factor isn't knife crime that there's so many other factors that lead someone to carry a knife whether it be special educational needs mental health um and obviously she is the chair of the all part all party for knife crime in parliament so she is is local and wants to make change it's just what has happened since then i think even post pandemic there weren't many answers of what is what they are doing or what is happening i know that they did give a chunk of money to the Croydon Youth Zone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to open a hub for young people to go to. But I feel bad, Jeremy. I can't really answer your question <laughs> in full because they haven't, they, I haven't seen them all in a while. They are very aware of the, the what's going on, though. They are extremely aware of what's going on. It's just what they do about okay. that. Okay. Well, you're in luck because he asked the second question. So I'll ask that one too. Uh, do you have any examples of your work turning around the lives of specific individuals? So is there anyone that has come back to you and said, everything you guys did has helped me get X, Y, and Z? Has there been someone where they particularly said, like, you stopped me carrying a knife? It'd be good to hear some of those examples. Yeah, and we put a lot of those online as well. So we've got like loads of case studies and things like that that we use online. We have previously taken on young people that we've worked with and given them apprenticeships and they've gone through our training and then got jobs afterwards after they've done their apprenticeship they've got jobs with us and then completed their qualifications and gone on for further jobs and these were young people that already had criminal records had already been kicked out of school we also have a number of young people that come back and see us after they've got jobs previously we worked on a really really good project which was one that I love doing called LNK Aspire and this was to actually work with young people who had been kicked out of school. Obviously, statistics are already against them. Um, and what we did was we did all of their CV writing, soft skills, basic kind of level one qualifications, found them work experience in various fields. A lot of them were young boys that wanted to go into construction. And we partnered with Wilmot Dixon on that. And then we managed to find a lot of them jobs in Croydon. We then mentored them for six months and then a lot of them have stayed in those jobs and actually pop in and come and see us and say thank you to us and things like that. So it is it is nice. And we get a lot of a lot of thanks from like parents as well. I think yeah. um, parents always kind of pop in and bring some celebrations. They do you know actually parents love a hero's chocolate. <laughs> they always come in with like a box of heroes to say thank you. So yeah, we we've got loads of like young people that kind of stay in contact and still have us on social media and message us and things like that as well so good that must yeah it must be a nice reward for obviously you're not doing it for the reward but it must be nice to at least get some recognition and see your work making a real difference yeah and I feel like it we have over the years um taken on people that have come straight out of prison or have had a past where they've been a perpetrator of knife crime as well Um, as well as victims of knife crime and being able to, I guess, sometimes give people a second chance and help them by giving them an apprenticeship or helping them uh, with work experience, internships, etc. to show that actually, I I think so many people think, I guess I got it as well when I was kicked out of school, that because you've done something at a certain age, that is you set for life and don't look at the change of even they weren't the same person they were five years ago. And actually being able to help support young people into employment, into further education, staying into something when the odds are against them is is really, really good. It's always a plus. Like our office get really, really happy when we can make sure that a young person's supported and happy. That's good. That leads me on to thanks. Do you want to shout out your team? Yeah. So like, I, I would just say like my team is amazing. So most of them... Are probably younger than me I'm 27 at the moment most of my team are 21 22 getting up and working in these schools every day and yeah. supporting these young people and I feel like they had they had such a hard year themselves during the pandemic and actually as soon as we were able to work in schools again we're so excited to go and see their kids and support them and actually we genuinely just need I think just more support from the community in general. And actually, if anyone wants to come down and meet myself and the team and and help through the summer programmes or like we love teaching our kids new things. So if there are people out there that are like really good artists, are really good with like 
I don't know, coding and things like that and want to actually come and teach young people something through the summer, yeah. that's what we that's what we're about and we'd totally support that. Brilliant. But yeah, shout out my team. They're amazing. They are. Big up the team. Um, yeah, there's a mix <laughs> of people that listen to this podcast. I won't give out numbers, but yeah, hopefully someone out there listens to this and gets in touch and can offer something to help through the summer because I think after the year that everyone's had the school year yeah the kids would definitely relish a chance to learn some new skills and you can help out yeah even if it's like I don't know you work at a company and they've never been out of Croydon before and inviting them to the offices do you get what I mean things like that are actually so eye-opening and I don't think people realize how many of our young people have actually never left Croydon it's mad um so in terms of future plans for Lives Not Knives, have you got any exclusive announcements or anything you can talk about exclusively on this podcast? Not until next month. Okay. I won't know until next <laughs> month. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um... Keep an eye out for next month, people. <laughs> June then, yeah? June, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, I won't say too much then. Keep your eye out for, for June, people. There might be a big <laughs> announcement on the horizon. If you had unlimited funds or were prime minister for a year, what would you do differently? Um, I think, so a lot of the young people that are referred to us already tick like a number of boxes. And I know it's awful that I tick boxes, but as in uh, come from poverty, have a, a parent or sibling that's in prison already, have a parent that is highly involved in drugs um, or has mental health issues etc and we often wait until they are 14 15 when they've already been suspended when they've already kind of had their first arguments with teachers etc etc to actually go in to support them because we're like oh they need our help now but actually what I think we could do is have a kind of duty of care for young people at a much younger age so that they're growing to support and love the education system and actually be believed in a lot more I think that we could have professionals that work with them that deal with those emotions at a young age at a much younger age because they've had to see things that a lot of adults haven't seen um so being able to actually support and work with them I would change completely to make sure that there was earlier help and earlier intervention I think I would also roll out a similar program to Lives Not Knives and make it mandatory for youth violence and knife crime education in schools. The first time young people um, know about knife crime shouldn't be because they've looked at a newspaper and the kid looks like them at the front of it and has been killed. That's like completely not something that anyone should understand. And I think those conversations need to be held in schools. I would also give better training to the police on stop and search, how to work with young people, the types of conversation and how to better police young people. Um, And also more support for the teaching staff and the staff that actually teach special educational needs and more to do with mental health and young people. So actually not taking six to eight weeks to check if something's wrong with them, but being able to do some of that within a week to make sure we can get the right support there. That's brilliant. For anyone listening in politics, take on some of those ideas. Eliza's not going to be a politician, but she's got some good ideas. So (laughs) steal them and make the world a better place, please. Recommendations. So have you got any books, films, TV shows or podcasts that you're listening to at the moment that you'd recommend? So either related to knife crime or your field or just anything that you've enjoyed recently? I'm a massive kind of biography person. Like my first book was Anne Frank's Diary. Oh, yeah. I love kind of real life stories, real life women uh, and, and men in general. Um, Frida Kahlo is a massive inspiration. I feel like we have to... For me, I like a lot of the things that I'm inspired by are kind of conversations about people's past lives before we had TV and computers and things like that and listening to like older people talk about the war and things that they went through and coming into this country. And my grandparents obviously were from India and came here. So all of those conversations, I would encourage people to have with their grandparents and the older people that they know and 
yeah, I would say books wise, really, I'm, I'm not a massive reader, but it is anything poetry, Maya Angelou, that, yeah, that is, is something that inspires me or kind of makes me think. Brilliant. Um, films, TV shows, anything down that route you've enjoyed recently? Um, I watched Selena series one and two about C- Selena Quinton Lella. Do you know who she is? I know who she is because I've Googled it because of a Beyonce scene in series two that I keep seeing on Twitter. <laughs> um, my fiance is a massive Beyonce fan. She was a big time singer back in the day and then got killed by a woman yeah. that ran a fan club. Yeah, so it was like she saw her as one of her friends, like who ran her fan club. Yeah, and she was shot by her. So that was like obviously, I as I said, I'm massive into true stories. So that was yeah. a good watch for me. Um, I love film wise Bohemian Rhapsody. That's a good film. Yeah, and and the music just in general. That's kind of piqued my interest. So in terms of like you mentioned Bohemian Rhapsody and that sort of music. Do you think there mm-hmm. is a tangible link between types of music and knife crime? Because some people mention that as like, oh, people listen to this music. We talk about this in the office a lot. Obviously, there's no kind of proof evidence yeah. when it comes to even Call of Duty and games and other Grand Theft Auto, etc. Yeah. But what what we always say is if you continually are saying you're going to do these things and saying it's like it's like you know when people say manifestation oh i believe i'm yeah. really good i believe da, 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 da. if you're constantly saying i know i can stab someone i know i'm a murderer i know i can kill someone it's the natural belief that you kind of build yourself to actually think that you are and can do these things um, so yeah. I, I would say when it comes to to the music, um, YouTube is like taking so much of drill off because it's completely like disgusting. Some of these things that are said, I think one of the ones that really upset me was when the little boy Oliver Stevens died and there was a song that was made. And there's a, a common phrase that's used by famous rappers as well that say, I'll put you in a spliff or I'll bun you in a spliff. Yeah, I don't know if you know that. I've, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's in so much music now, and it's like people are actually getting away with being proud of knowing who killed someone or being proud of knowing this information and not sharing it. And and then their families are, are listening to this mainstream, mainstream apparently, music that's basically making fun out of it. I personally think some of it is disgusting. There's yeah. talent because it's pure talent and you're good at what you do. But if you can't be good at what you do without all of the profanities and all of the swearing and all of the nastiness that you're bringing in, then why are why are we promoting you? Why is yeah. there a platform there for that? So, yeah, I'm not saying that it, that it forces people to to do things. You can't you can't say, oh, because he listened to a rap song, he then picked up a knife and stabbed, stabbed someone. Rap's been going on for how long? And people have been talking about stuff like that for how long? Yeah. I don't think that's the necessarily the issue. I think the issue is that because some people are now rapping about things that are actually happening in everyday yeah. life. Because before it was like, oh, he's saying it, but he's not really like that or he's not really doing it or it sounds good. And now it's like, actually, he's this guy who's just killed someone has just made a video from prison about what he's done and it's fine. No, it's not fine. Yeah, I think some of that um, fear element's gone, isn't it? I feel like the fear was never there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one one of my best friends growing up, he came here from Mongolia and was was learned his English because he was put in care and raised by a Jamaican family with quite a strong accent. So he okay. people a lot of people in school made fun out of him because he was obviously Chinese looking, he was Mongolian, but he had a very strong kind of Jamaican accent. Okay. And he could fight, he could fight, he could fight, he could fight. And I remember when he got, first went went to prison, I think he was 16, I must have been 15. And one thing he said to me that I'll never forget is that he enjoyed it. He was fine because he was stable and he knew what he was waking up to every day. Whereas for his whole life, before he came to this country even, and some of the things he had yeah. seen, nothing was ever stable or certain whereas this was yep I'm here for this many days and this is comfortable and this is what my life is going to be 
Some people aren't scared because they have nothing else to live for. Yeah, it's a sad outlook though, isn't it? That some people would prefer prison to their freedom and also think that crime is fine because they can handle prison. But this is when we also look at reoffending rates and understanding that most young people that have gone to prison at a very young age reoffend within, I believe it's the first two years. Wow. Some of them, get you get used to a certain lifestyle and that's it. So I was going to ask about winding down outside of work. So do you ever feel mm-hmm. like what you work on is so like emotionally draining or tough to deal with that mm. it weighs on your mind a lot? And also conversely, how do you then wind down outside of work and just focus on other things? Um, I think for years... I would say I didn't have a problem, but I relied a lot on going out and drinking and being sociable all the time because I didn't want to have to go home and think about those things. So I was always, always, always around people, always kind of some vice to make sure that I was busy thinking about something else. And actually the pandemic helped me stop and breathe. Yeah. Because for me it was like, actually I can't do all of those things. I can't not be sad. I have to kind of embrace all of those emotions and stop thinking oh I have to be strong because I'm the CEO so and actually think actually if I breathe and try and understand those emotions I don't have to be strong I have to be passionate and understand so I think that's one one great thing the pandemic did for me I would say to wind down and stuff like that I think I've learned that a lot of a lot of that is just having a stricter schedule making sure I'm going to sleep at a certain time making sure I'm having a tea at a certain time things like that yeah. things that I've never had because I didn't ever go to school so because I was mm. never in school I've never had a set routine like my whole life setting myself certain small goals but setting myself little goals like just, just I guess sometimes they're just really really silly things like I'll actually get up and do my hair mm. do you get what I mean yeah. just just silly things that I, I don't worry about but they they really make a difference because it shows that you're giving yourself your time yeah self-care and all that yeah yeah 100 percent. i'm not a big girly girl but i will get my lashes done once a month <laughs> except when they're closed because <laughs> of the pandemic <laughs> exactly on a more hopeful note or just inspiring note so you've you've said some really interesting things and i think your story is really really interesting and i appreciate you giving up your time to speak to me if there's someone listening to this who is not focused on school or has been kicked out and they're worried that they might spiral or their life might not have as much meaning. What would you say to someone who's either on the verge of being kicked out or has been kicked out of school? Because you've obviously been there, done it, but you're also still very successful Mm. in your own right at the moment. I would say that there's a lot of noise around you as soon as you get kicked out because you're listening to all of the negative of the reasons why you've been kicked out and people telling you you're a bad person or you've done this wrong and da, da 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 but I feel like if you had a reason as to why your reaction was that in certain situations and it wasn't coming from a bad place then understanding that that setting wasn't right for you and a new door has opened mm-hmm. is the best way to look at it too many people feel like they have to go to school, college, university to be able to get anywhere. And the best thing that I've learned is that life experience has opened so many doors for me. And I would have had none of those experiences if I hadn't been excluded from school. And also, the other thing that I would say is that a lot of people that you're now hanging out with are probably in a similar boat as you because they have the time where they're not in school as well. And looking at some of some of that and thinking, is this still the way I want to be behaving in a few years, five years, 10 years down the line? Because that's what we say to some of our our young people and some of the older people that we know that are selling drugs and doing whatever they're doing still. Yeah. And you look at it and you think, when they were 15, they thought by 30 they would be owning six houses, (laughs) three Mercedes. And you're looking at at it now and thinking, mate, you can't even sell a Ben anymore. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? Do you get what I mean? And, And it's just understanding actually what is the bigger picture and the bigger goal because for your whole life you're really going to do that no 
It's interesting. I think your story has shown, like you say, you don't have to go to school, you don't have to go to college, you don't have to go to university, and you still can make something of your life. But the illegal route is not always the best route, might work for a little while, might end up with you dead, might end up with you in prison. And there are legal ways to make money, there's ways you can make a difference, you can start a charity, you can start a business, and there are other avenues that you can go down. So I'm sure a lot of people will have been inspired by some of what you said. And I think the last thing I'd probably say is no job is embarrassing. When I first got kicked out of school, I worked at the pizza shop at the top of my road to make money because I wanted to buy trainers. Um, And I think I was 14 or 15. And actually having my own money was then another way for me to be able to get out of grid and go into London, do whatever I wanted to do, own nice things. And I think a lot of people look at certain jobs like they're beneath them and yeah. understanding that do you know what how will you get a work ethic if you never even start working wise words yeah I like that one I like that one so anything you feel like you should have mentioned that you'd like to to add obviously when we when we look at knife crime when we look at youth violence I think we often wait until someone has died or it it hits home for us to talk about it and actually prevention is is and will always be better than cure because it's already hurt so many people by the time that's happened just because it hasn't like directly affected you or it doesn't mean that you still can't make a difference to someone in your life that maybe needs that conversation brilliant and where can people support lives not knives or find you online or on social media so on Facebook, we're Lives Not Knives and our website, LivesNotKnives.org and then Instagram, Twitter, LNK Charity or if you write Lives Not Knives in, it's there. But we're much better on Instagram. Okay. And if any businesses want to throw some money your way? Yeah. Uh, literally, info at LivesNotKnives.org or LivesNotKnives.org. But if anyone wants to throw some money our way but also wants to come and see what their money's been spent on, let me know because our kids really enjoy meeting new people as well. Thanks so much for your time, Eliza. That was a really great chat. And thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. That's another episode wrapped. And you can message me or follow the podcast at Hustle Up Podcast on Instagram. You can find the Hustle Up Podcast on all music and podcast platforms. And you can like or subscribe to check out future episodes. Episodes are recorded and produced by me, Josh Burrell, and music is courtesy of DJ Hagen, spelled H-A-G-A-N, on Instagram at Hagen underscore UK.